our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 14. We continue our studies in the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 14. We're going to put in at uh, verse 15. Got to guard my podium better from now on. I have studies hidden all over the building in case people want to fool around. Luke 14. Now when one of those who sat at the table with Jesus heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that's servant. (laughs) It doesn't mean what you think, and you're going to be sorry for that. How dare you? So that servant came and reported these things to his master. And then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city. Bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges. Compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Let's pray together. Lord, as always, we are thrilled to be in the presence of the living Word of God. We've had an opportunity to read it. We're going to read it through again as we conduct our study this morning. I pray that the Holy Spirit would attend the reading and the hearing of it and that our hearts would be amplified with the truth that is in it. I pray for my comments, Lord, that they would in some way enhance just the understanding and not at all hinder anything, Lord, from what you want to do in this place. We want to be all about you this morning, Lord, and no one else and nothing else. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. If you run out of excuses for missing a day of work, you might uh, might want to try one of these. These are actual excuses. And I'm going to give you the reference, because I know you're not going to believe me. The Canadian Medical Association, 1982, reported bingo brain. This would be very popular around here, by the way. I used to have it when we used to have church over at the Y, and here's why. It's the headache associated with carbon monoxide intoxication, which occurs after spending long hours in smoke-filled bingo halls. Don't admit that you played bingo at the Y on Thursday nights. But when we'd come in on Sunday, man, you'd get high on the nicotine. Bingo brain. I should file. The New England Medical Journal reported disco digit. It is a sore finger caused from snapping fingers while dancing. The Journal of the American Medical Association, 1956, reported espresso wrist. Pain suffered by espresso machine operators from strong wrist motions required to operate the equipment. 
The British Medical Association Journal 1965 reported flip-flop dermatitis, skin disease on the feet from wearing rubber flip-flops. Ice cream frostbite reported in the New England Medical Journal 1982, frostbite on the lips from prolonged contact with ice cream. Again reported in the New England Medical Journal 1981, you might have genes folliculitis, J-E-A-N-S. It's irritation of the hair follicles from the waist down to the knees caused by wearing too tight jeans. <laughs> Other real reported medical excuses include joystick digit, knife sharpener's cramp, label liquor's tongue, money counter's cramp, electronic space war video game epilepsy, <laughs> Remember that time Gene had that. <laughs> and one of my favorites, television legs. The loss of normal flexibility of the legs from being slumped in a chair in front of the television too long a period of time. Try that tomorrow. Jesus told a parable about a wedding supper to which all the invited guests offered various excuses. In their case, they would not simply miss out on supper. They would miss out on salvation. The supper represented an invitation to receive eternal life, to enter the kingdom of God on earth, and to spend eternity with the Lord in heaven. God has issued a universal invitation to whosoever will come and receive salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We call it the gospel. It's good news. Many people, however, still offer excuses when they are confronted with the gospel invitation to receive Jesus Christ. Excuses are inexcusable. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, your excuses expose you. And number two, your excuses exclude you. First of all, in verses 15 through 20, your excuses expose you. As we pick up our story, Jesus is in the middle of a difficult dinner. It was the Sabbath, and he had just performed a healing. It was a work that outraged the religious Pharisees dining with him who believed no work should be done on the Sabbath. Jesus had then further offended them by pointing out their bad spiritual manners. The guests scrambled for the best seats and the host only invited people who could reciprocate. The atmosphere around the table was tense. What do you do Christmas time and Thanksgiving when you're together with your family sometimes and it's, it, can it get tense every now and then? There's just some, you know, your Uncle Fred on your mother's side, twice removed. I mean, there's always one guy in those big guys. And, and you get into whether it's a religious or a political discussion, and it can get pretty tense. Well, a guy broke the tension in verse 15. One of those who sat at the table with him heard these things. He said to him, well, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. We can't know this man's motives. His motives may have been good. He may have been ministered to by Jesus' description of the coming kingdom and realized the privilege of being in it. Or his motives may have been bad. He may have been proclaiming his belief that as a religious Jew, he had reservations for the kingdom. Motives are awfully tough to determine. We need to quit assigning motives to the things people say and do until we're sure where they're coming from. At least ask the person about the meaning behind his uh, actions. I get this a lot. Uh, I don't know why. 
I think it's because I'm always driving into the sun, squinting. Uh, but even with sunglasses, I don't know, maybe I have some kind of rare eye disease or something. Who knows? But I'll be driving. A week later, somebody will say, you didn't wave to me. I waved to you, and you didn't wave to me. And so now we're going to this other church <laughs> where people wave. And I said, well, when was that? Oh, it was at, you know, around sunset, sundown, while you were headed into the sun and... <laughs> You were squinting, avoiding cars, you know, but you should have waved. All right, I'm sorry. So for a while, I had in my car just a hand on a stick, and we just, I just held it up, you know, like this. So that, no, it's, it, it, I'm exaggerating, but not by much. Uh, there are times, and you've had it happen to you too. I saw you didn't wave. You're really rude the other day at the store or at dinner or something. Have you ever, haven't you ever just walked right by somebody and not recognized them? Oh, I didn't recognize you. And, uh, and then hopefully you don't say something stupider. Like, oh, so when are you due? Oh, you're not due. Oh, you know, or something like that. But sometimes you don't, you know, so get a, you know, if, if it bothers you that I didn't wave to you, ask me. And say, hey, do, you know, did you see me wave to you? No. I mean, what am I going to say? Yeah, and I can't stand you. I mean, just, man, I, I just, in fact, I turned my car into yours trying to run you off the road. But, I mean, so, I mean, now that's a silly one, but there are serious and deeper issues people get into. Why didn't you invite me? Why did you do this? Why didn't you do that? And so let's be careful about motives and give each other the benefit of the doubt. Now, whatever this man's motives were, his statement was true. It will be a blessing to eat bread in the kingdom of God. And it's not just that they have really good Italian focaccia bread and excellent balsamic dipping sauce. Oh, man. Breakfast burrito and then dipping sauce. I'll tell you what else. Maybe you could dip the burrito into... Well, no, then you've got the hot sauce. All right, all right. Now, I think we will be eating in the kingdom on earth and in eternity, but the images of a wedding supper being used to represent the joyous atmosphere of spiritual satisfaction and fellowship that we will share with the Lord in the future at His coming. It pictures for you all of your appetites being fully satisfied by Jesus Christ. The statement was true, but who exactly would be at this supper in the kingdom? The Jews having supper with Jesus, and especially the Pharisees, believed that they had table reservations in the kingdom of God. By birth and by background, they believed they were secure. They were not secure, not at all. In fact, they would be excluded because of their own excuses. With compassion, Jesus began to examine their excuses and thereby expose their hearts before he told them that they would be excluded. And so in verse 16 we read, Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. And sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. It will help if you understand Jewish culture and customs with regard to invitations to a formal dinner. There were always two invitations to the supper. There were two stages, we would say, of inviting the guests. First, a formal invitation would be issued stating the day of the supper. The invited guests would be expected to RSVP by a certain time, indicating their decision to definitely attend. Then the host would know exactly how many guests to prepare for. This is not unlike 
our own customs, if you're inviting somebody to a, a wedding banquet and you are going to provide some kind of a meal, a dinner, you need to know who's going to be there for the caterer. Now, on the day of the supper, a servant or servants would be sent out to announce that the supper was ready and for the invited guests to come and arrive. This is something we don't think of because we don't live in a first century culture. Uh, you know, we have more of a fast-paced, clock-oriented culture. And so if you send me an invitation, an IRSVP, and it's Friday night at 7 p.m., then, uh, you know, I know that Friday at 7 p.m. everything's going to be as ready as possible and we can all show up and get together. Now, think first century. I mean, they don't have gen air ranges, no microwaves. I mean, you know, there's, it's a big deal to put on these kinds of productions. And, and, and all of the little village or town would kind of revolve around a giant supper like this. And so you would say, yeah, I'm coming on Friday to your supper and then you would just hang around Friday waiting for them to send out servants to say, hey, it's ready, start coming. And again, we don't understand this, but if you've been in the third world and, and been invited to something like this, uh, I, I know when I was younger going to the Philippines especially, and they'd say, oh, we're going to have dinner at, at 6 p.m., that meant anywhere from 5 to 9 p.m because of the preparations and where people had to come from and whether they could get a jeepney, you know, in their neighborhood and whether the jeepney would allow them to c carry a pig with them and all this kind of stuff. And so you never were quite sure. And so you just needed to know that that night you were going to be over at the Sea Breeze Hotel or wherever it was. And sometime during the night, a roasted pig was going to make its appearance and you were going to be dining with those people. And if you, want to, you, you know, if you want to sit around looking at your wristwatch all night saying it's 5, it's 5.15, it's 5.25, where's the pig? You're the pig because you're in their culture and it's a whole different ballgame. So that's what's going on. Dinner invitations, yes, we're going to come. And then the second invite goes out. Now let's pause and put this into a historical and prophetic context. God had promised his chosen people, the nation of Israel, a kingdom on earth. His first invitation to them was through the law and the prophets, the Hebrew scriptures that we would call the Old Testament. The kingdom was now ready. You remember John the Baptist and then Jesus came on the scene and what was their message? The kingdom of God is at hand. This was the second invitation. John said, here's Jesus, the king, and Jesus was saying, yeah, it's ready. You guys, all you need to do is receive me and you will receive your kingdom. The Jews had accepted the first invitation and expected their kingdom, but they were now excusing themselves from the second being issued by John and Jesus. Have you ever accepted an invitation, then later discovered something or usually someone about the event that made you want to excuse yourself? You have. You know you have. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, we're going to this thing. Oh, hey, did I tell you that uh, Charles Manson was going to be there? He needs to hear about Jesus, you know, or something weird like that. I mean, it's usually not. I mean, you just, there's somebody that's going to be there and you think, oh, I know I'm a Christian, but man, I, I just don't want to be there. Or, or, you know, whatever it might be. And, and you start to think, what, what other thing trumps this invitation? I've already told them I'd be there, but what, uh, 
let's see, I have to visit my father in jail. I, uh, you know, or you come up with something that the other person is, oh, yeah, I, I mean, that, yeah, that's a big excuse. Okay, I can see where you wouldn't come. And, and, and uh, you know, of course, you want to tell the truth because you're a Christian, right? Of course, yeah, you would never tell a lie about anything like that. And so uh, that's what's going on. And, and so the Jews, they discovered that Jesus was not the Messiah they wanted. They wanted a conquering king, not a suffering savior. And so they were saying no to his offer of the kingdom on earth. From God's perspective, they were excusing themselves from the kingdom. Now back into the parable, Jesus described a series of excuses. Verse 18, but they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, get ready, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now, by the way, before we get into the excuses, when did the two words, excuse me, become an excuse for all manner of rude behavior. Have you ever been in the store? And, and, and you know, you're at Save Mart. I'm at Save Mart, and I'm there in the olive oil section. And uh, olive oil, you know, is a, it's a big thing. Virgin, extra virgin, there's different types of olive oil. Then you've got to see how much you can spend. I mean, it's a, it's a major part of our budget. And so... <laughs> So let's say I'm in the olive oil section, and, and you know, here's the olive oil section. My cart is out of the way. It's never in the way. It, there's plenty of room to pass by. And I'm scoping out, you know, do I want Star Extra Virgin? I certainly don't want the Sunny Select brand. You know, that's not even made from olives. But, uh, you know, but I'm, I'm looking for some brand of olive oil that, that will suit my needs. I'm reminiscing about the, you know, the, I like the big can, you know, the because that's what we used to have at home, you know, just olive oil like crazy you know and stuff but anyway so i'm looking at all of a sudden you hear excuse me you look over and there's a person standing there and the intent of their excuse me is get out of the way i'm looking at the olive oil now and so you you move out of the way and they come and they start looking at the olive oil they get their olive oil and they leave excuse me I mean, excuse me is, is not, I mean, you can't just say excuse me to somebody and then, and then be rude, but that's what's happened in our culture. These three inexcusable excuses pretty much summarize all the excuses people might make for rejecting God's offer of salvation. First of all, excuse number one, your stuff is a reason to, you think to be excused. I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. Now I've heard it said that this man was claiming to have purchased land without ever seeing it, indicating he might be lying, not telling the truth. I want to give him and the other two guys the benefit of the doubt and say they are telling the truth for two reasons. Number one, as you'll see, they probably were telling the truth. It wasn't that they didn't have to do these things it's just that their priorities were messed up and secondly if you say they were lying then you can't put yourself into the story you think well i would never lie like that and so you think you're only dealing with low life low level people here and and really the parable is always about us it's always a way of of searching our own hearts and so let's say they're telling the truth in this first case it may be that he had purchased the land but now it was time for the final inspection what would we call that today we would call it the walkthrough those of you who've purchased houses, you buy this house, you negotiate for it, you get into escrow, everything's going along. 
30 days, 60 days, typically 90 days later, the house is going to close and it's going to be in your name. You'd better go on a walkthrough to make sure that the seller didn't take out all the windows and appliances thinking that those were his right. A lot of people, when I used to work in, the, in and around the real estate field, a lot of arguments over fireplace tools and fireplace screens. I'm telling you, it would kill deals. Last minute, you're getting ready to take the documents down to record at the county. Stop the deal! They took the $29 fireplace screen. I'll buy you another one. No, it's the principle of the thing. I wanted that one. And, and I mean, people really argue about lame things. So you want to make the walkthrough, make sure that, you know, the electricity really works and all of that kind of thing. And so it was the same thing in their culture. There was a, a possibility of this final inspection. Now, the point is he knew the day of the supper and he had committed to attend, but now he put a higher priority on completing a real estate transaction than on going to the dinner. Now, this excuse summarizes the love of material things that hinders many people from acting upon God's invitation to salvation. You're too busy for God because you're always taking care of your stuff. There's always something somewhere in your garage, at the coast, in the mountains, something that you own somewhere that you have to go and take care of, and, and you're just too busy for God. Now, let me pause, too, and say this. We're not really talking this morning about Christians who make excuses for not going to church or Bible study. I think there is an application there if you want to make it yourself. The context is unbelievers making excuses that keep them from coming to salvation in Jesus Christ. And so keep that in mind. We're not rebuking people for having weekend hobbies and things like that. Uh, although many times people do need to be rebuked for some of those things. So the idea here is that here's a guy in the world, living in the world. He's um, got all kinds of stuff, whether it's dune buggies or boats or airplanes or, you know, whatever it is. And he can only do it on the weekends and he's always taking care of his stuff. And he, has th he thinks no time for God because in his mind, God is something you do uh, in your free time. And he doesn't have any because he's busy with his stuff. Then your success is the subject of excuse number two. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. And so he went to the Selma Oxen Mall and uh, you didn't, you know, just, and these things just come to me. Oh, disco digit. Wait a minute. Anyway, again, let's assume that he was telling the truth. He also knew the day of the supper and had committed to it. The oxen could wait Plus, his statement shows that he was already on his way to test them when the servant caught up to him, meaning he had no intention of even asking to be excused. But when they found him, he says, oh, gosh, I, I forgot this is the day I have to go test drive five teams of oxen. Now, if you were going to buy an additional five team of oxen, then you were pretty wealthy in that culture. And so this guy is looking to open up a few more fields and to, to expand his business. And this excuse summarizes the drive for success in your occupation and career. It's a picture of everyone who has no time for God because they are too busy with their own earthly business. And then your spouse is the subject of excuse number three. Still another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now you laughed earlier out of character with your noble hearts, thinking that, well, the wife must be a nag who doesn't want the husband to have any fun. 
But just the opposite is true, beloved. This is a noble excuse because often women were not invited to supper, only the men. So this guy seemed to be putting his wife and his family first. But remember, he had already accepted the invitation and was now rejecting it. If he truly put his spouse first, he would have not accepted in the first place if he didn't want to be away from her, nor would he now shame her and his family by refusing an invitation that he had already accepted. Although it specifically mentions the spouse, we could easily expand this to include the whole family. And so this excuse summarizes all the people who say they have no time for God because of their family activities. They're busy on the weekend or they're busy somewhere with family activities. Certainly, we're pro-family. We love that you would have activities with your family. However, I've noticed over the years, a lot of family activities don't involve the whole family. People think they involve the whole family, but they really don't. It just becomes an excuse. This guy, like the others, didn't even ask to be excused. It was as if the mention of his wife and family was sufficient. So he had accepted the invitation, and this guy comes, hey, the feast is ready, and he just says, oh, family. And as, as if, you know, oh, well, you have to back off. That is the trump card once they play the family card. And so you're, you know, you're asking somebody about the Lord, and they say, well... You know, my material possessions. And then you can beat that down. Well, you know, my business would suffer. And it, my family, la familia, you know, and stuff. It's all about family. And we have a tendency to back off as if it's the final word. And we're hesitant to tell them that family can only be first when Jesus is first. You have to love the Lord more than anything or anybody else to fully enjoy the family that you have. And to know even what a family is and to be able to make the kinds of commitments to it. And then secondly, when did God and and your family become mutually exclusive? Well, as I'm thinking about it, sadly, it is the teaching of many churches. And and and, and a lot of people believe this, that, man, the ministry comes first and, and, you know, leave your family behind, forget your wife, don't worry about your kids, they'll fend for themselves. And we've never believed that. We don't believe that. We believe that, that family and God are, you know, are important. And you can't really have a decent family, a godly family, unless you've committed your heart to the Lord and, and know how to keep all of those priorities in order. And so all of these things end up being trivial pursuits when compared to eternal life. If that seems a little cold or harsh, let me put it another way. Your stuff... Your success and even your spouse and family are best when you put God first. The excuses people make expose one or more of these trivial pursuits. When good things keep you from the best thing, they become bad things. What they needed to realize in this parable and understand was that your excuses exclude you. Verse 21, so that servant came and reported these things to his master. Sometimes our service doesn't seem very successful. Can you imagine this poor servant knowing his master's joy and heart, so excited about throwing this feast and having all of these people say that they would come and making all the preparation, joyfully spending his money and his time, getting all the servants whipped up. I can see him walking through the house, you know, tasting the spaghetti and, and, you know, doing all of these things. 
go and tell them it's ready. And that means it'll be ready in about a half hour by the time they get here, you know, and, and, and we can start serving. And, and then all of a sudden, the servant comes back and he can tell that there's this, there's this just kind of an air about him. There's this atmosphere. What is it? Everybody in almost a conspiracy said they're not coming. And they gave these excuses. What a sad, sad thing for that servant to have to deliver to his master. And yet oftentimes in our serving God, we, we're keyed into success. There's something in our society that, that you know, you know, pastors, unfortunately, I'll give you a little pastor secret here. Don't tell anybody I told you this. this pastors talk about numbers and nickels, they say. How many people came and how much did they give? Numbers and nickels. And, and, and so a lot of times, you know, you get into that and you think, oh, we're not as successful or we could be more successful and everything is about numbers and nickels and bigness and greatness. God doesn't look at it that way. God wants your faithfulness. If, if you report back to the Lord, Lord, I, I shared with this person and that person, this had happened and that happened and nobody came to the Lord. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done, because that's what I asked you to do. And I'll take it up with them. And, and so just be faithful to what the Lord has called you to. Don't worry about the results. Worry about your life. Verse 21, then the master of the house being angry. Now I want to stop there for a moment. Does God get angry? Well, not in the sense that we think. And that's not what the word here says. It says he heard the report and being angry, he acted accordingly. It is God's nature to be angry always at sin. And so God doesn't get angry the way we get angry. All of us struggle with anger at some level. You might have a long fuse. I mean, it might take a lot to get you angry. If it does, just hang around me for a while. I'll get you mad. Uh, there's Charles Spurgeon he was talking to a guy one time in England, and this guy was talking about how he you know, had achieved some kind of a sinless perfection and never got angry or you know, anything. And it was, it was at a minister's luncheon, and Spurgeon came up behind him and poured water on him took a pitcher of water and poured it over his head. And, of course, the guy started, you know, getting angry. And he goes, well, there you go. And that was it. <laughs> Ruined a lifetime of sinless perfection in that one moment, you know. And so maybe you've got a long fuse or a short fuse, but there's a time at which you've crossed the line and you get angry and mad and maybe even do things that you, and say things that you didn't mean and all that. God doesn't do that. God is always angry at sin. And so, yes, he's gracious and merciful and loving and forgiving and all of that, but those who refuse to repent, he remains angry in a righteous way with their sin because he is also holy. And so he said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. This would be absolutely unheard of in their culture. These people were the outcasts, considered spiritually unclean. They were never invited anywhere, let alone into your house for supper. In the context of the greater meaning of the parable, these would be common Jews who the religious Pharisees and scribes felt would never have any chance of making it into the kingdom. And then the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. The highways would be populated by travelers from all over. The hedges provided shelter for them as they stopped to rest or sleep along the way. There would be Jews, but also Samaritans and Gentiles. 
The invitation was being extended to anyone and everyone to whosoever would come to this supper. The mention of hedges indicates the scope of the search. The servant was to go into the hedges. Now, this is where folks would shelter for the night as they were walking along traveling. You'd, maybe if you had a journey of several days or a week, you didn't you know, pop out your nylon tent or anything like that. Uh, you just had the clothes on your back and maybe a little sack and you'd jump into a hedge somewhere, uh, you know, similar to what vagrants and hobos and homeless people do today. Uh, and, and so imagine this, you're the servant and he goes, hey, I still see some seats. Go out and find some people who are living in baseball dugouts or in hedges somewhere. Go out to the hobo jungle there and say, hey, you guys want some dinner? And uh, hope they're not stabbing hobos, but... Uh, <laughs> But uh, you know what I mean? It's just wild when you think about it. Every now and then I come through with an inside joke that I can't tell you about. But anyway, Gene will tell you about that later. Uh, so, so this is great. And so he says, I want you to go. And then you guys, you know, we have a few homeless people here in Hanford. But when I lived in San Bernardino, I think, you know, like half the population was homeless, you know. <laughs> and we had homeless people every morning at the church living in, there was a little kind of entryway, you know, recessed into the building and there'd be several people sleeping there when I'd get to the building in the morning and after, they'd give me about five minutes to open they were always very courteous and then they'd come in and see you know what we could do for them and we'd share the gospel with them and we always had a shovel in the bookstore because there was always weeds you know and I'd say well go out there and because they always say hey I'll work for food and well here's a shovel you know and then about 20 minutes later, I'd go get the shovel because and, and, uh, they would be down the road. You know, but occasionally, there would be somebody, and, and, and so that was a good way to do it. But here's a situation where you just say, go out and invite anybody that you see. Anybody and everybody is welcome at my feast. It's interesting. It started with the highest echelon and level of society, the Jewish religious leaders. And now he says, look, I want everybody to come, maimed, lame, blind people. Anybody that you can find, Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, bring them all in. And the indication here is that there's always room for more. Let me say something about this word compel. It is a servant who was sent out to compel, not a soldier. We do not compel people into the kingdom of God by force of arms, but by fervent argument. The kind of people being invited to the ready feast would need a lot of convincing in that culture. Poor, maimed, blind Samaritans and Gentiles were not used to this. They would think it was some kind of a, you know, a joke that somebody was going to play on them. And so they would, they would need to be compelled. Do you realize this is exactly what happened in church history? The Jews officially and nationally rejected the invitation of the kingdom. And so in the book of Acts, the invitation was extended beyond Jerusalem to Judea, then Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. It is extended to all people everywhere from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. And we are still in that invitation time. The the supper has not happened yet. It hasn't been filled. We are the servants that are going out into the highways and hedges. We call them Hanford and Lamore and Armona and all the surrounding areas, Riverdale and Layton. Those are our highways and hedges. And wherever we work, wherever we go to school, wherever we go to the store and buy olive oil, that is where we are to tell people about Jesus, to hand them an invitation from the church. 
so that they'll learn about Jesus Christ if we can't directly talk to them about their need for salvation. That is the business that we are about. What about the Jews who were first invited? He says, For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Now this doesn't mean that Jews cannot be saved. God is not anti-Semitic. He is not through with the nation of Israel. He loves His chosen people. It means that the nation of Israel in the first century would not experience the kingdom on earth. The kingdom on earth would be delayed while the invitation would go out to everyone everywhere, Jew and Gentile. There's also a very important Bible principle in and behind this parable. If you are saved, it's because you responded to the free invitation of God. If you remain lost, however, it's your fault because you made excuses. God has made every provision for salvation. He spared not His own Son who died that all men everywhere might have eternal life. The Father is ready to receive all who come to Him. There is an infinite willingness in God to save whoever will believe in Jesus. Everyone is invited, but not everyone elects to accept the invitation. God desires, He says, that His house be filled. Audio Adrenaline had that song a few years ago, Big, Big House, with lots and lots of room. And that's the attitude we should have. Never limit the amount of people that you think God is going to save. There's lots of groups, Christian and cult, that want to limit the scope of God's salvation. The Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, they thought some, some funky thing happened in the 20s where some secret you know, resurrection took place and 144,000 people are in heaven and everybody else, oh well, you can be in the kingdom somewhere but you're not you know, among the really special people. Hey, that's not enough people as far as God's concerned. He says, keep inviting them, keep them coming. And now we're in the year 2005 after you know, a couple of thousand years of invitation. Millions upon millions and millions of people that have come into the family of God that are going to be seated. Man, this is a seating arrangement nightmare when you think about it. Imagine the kingdom, you know, because this is talking also about a real wedding feast that's going to take place on planet earth at the end of the tribulation at the beginning of the kingdom of heaven on earth. There's going to be a real feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, it's called in the book of Revelation. And there's going to be a lot of people there. It's going to be fantastic. God desires that His house be filled. Those people that we look upon who are not yet Christians, even the ones that are giving us the hardest time, God desires that they come. We look at people and say, man, that guy's lame. God says, yeah, I want the lame. That guy's blind to my needs as an employee. Yeah, bring that blind guy in. That guy's maimed. Look at his family. It's all, yes, I want that maimed person to make him whole. Whatever race, whatever ethnic background, those are the people that God wants us to invite. If you have never responded to the invitation by receiving Jesus as your Savior, the question to answer is, what is your inexcusable excuse? There is no possible excuse that could trump missing eternal life. God is offering you eternal life? Hmm. Got to do a walkthrough. Got to do a test drive. Family first, brother. We're talking about eternal life. I told a story Wednesday morning at the men's thing that, that uh, I think is appropriate. 
pastor. Pastors get this question all the time. Sometimes it's just people letting off steam, and I understand that. But uh, this pastor was with someone that had lost a child, and the, and the person looked at him and shook his finger in his face, and he said, where was God when my son died? And the pastor, with gentleness and grace, said, he was right where he was when his son died. Because, you know, there's nothing you can do to trump God. You understand that? Oh, my son died. My daughter died. I, I had a miscarriage. Uh, my house burned down. I've got cancer. This happened. That happened. All right. It's tragic, isn't it? It's terrible. It's awful. I've seen a lot of death in my short life. And, and a lot of you have seen even more. And, and you've suffered more. Okay. What's all that about? It's all about sin. And what God did is he sent his son to die on Calvary's cross so that instead of just saying, I don't like it that I have cancer, I don't like it that my child died, I don't like it that my house burned down, God can say, well, I don't really like it either. It's a result of sin, but you can live with me forever. You can have eternal life. Old things can pass away and all things can become new. This is just a drop in the bucket. This light affliction is but for a moment, but for the glory that is to be revealed in the future. I'll take that. That's a good trade. That's a great supper that God has spread. Excuses are as deadly as the worst immorality. You realize that? A lot of times we look at people and say, oh, that person's a sinner. They're doing this. They're doing that. I'm okay. I don't really need God. I, you know, I do this. I do that. Ooh, your excuses will keep you out of heaven just as much as their immorality will. Because the issue isn't what you're doing or what you're not doing. It's that you need to know Christ as your Savior. And th this has application, by the way, to us as Christians, too. It's a little bit off the subject. But uh, a lot of times we judge people. We look at people and say, oh, that person, outwardly, they're doing this or whatever, and, and they're in sin. They need church discipline. Let's go to them and whatever. We need to be careful that we are doing all the things God wants us to do and not making excuses because excuses are inexcusable. If you're a believer, as we've talked about this morning, you're the servant who is to compel people to come in and receive salvation because God desires his house to be filled. And I will just say this about that, something that's really been on my heart a lot this past year. We need a lot of joy as believers. We need to be enjoying Jesus Christ when we compel others to meet him because we are inviting people not to a funeral, but to a feast. And a lot of times Christians come across as if they're inviting people to a funeral. Come to church. Come to Jesus. Don't, don't laugh. Don't talk. Don't say anything. Keep everything in low, hushed tones. Let's be reverent, you know, because, I mean, after all, this is God, and God has never cracked a smile. And so let's just Come on now, you're freaking me out. You're going to embarrass me in front of my friends. You know? and, so, and, and so we, we do. We, we have a natural tendency to be reverent unless... Well, I, I think I have a natural tendency to be irreverent, but you know, it's just because I'm loud is all really... You know, I go on these missions trips with the kids and the chaperones. I'm a chaperone. They say, well, could you just tone it down a little bit? You know, We're in a cathedral. I go, okay! You know, and, and, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, so, but really, you know, a lot of times the Christian religion, you know, the Christian relationship, rather, is, is promoted in, in hushed tones as if it's a funeral. And, and I look at that and I think, man, I wouldn't even want to go there. That's awful. That's lame. We're going to a feast. 
I mean, think about where you want to have lunch this afternoon. If it's not a breakfast burrito, you're crazy. But still, I mean, it's like, man, let's go. I love the food here. I love, we talk about the atmosphere different places, don't we? It's just so much fun to get together with friends and to do that. I mean, that's the idea. People aren't going to be hungry to come to a funeral. You can't even get people to funerals half the time. They only go because they have to. But you can get them to go to a feast. And so if we're not being very successful in bringing people to Christ or even to church, then maybe it's because we're funeral-oriented and we need to be more feasting. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these things.